We'll turn your Bibles to Revelation 18. Thank you so much, worship team, worship choir. Joy just to have you and leading us. And what a great opportunity to continue our worship in study of God's Word. Um, Revelation 18, that means there's only four chapters left. Uh, Wow, this has been a crazy, crazy series. taking our site-by-site journey through the book of Revelation. I just have to say, as, a, as your tour guide, um, just very transparent with you, this has been unlike anything I've ever done, taught before, even experienced. I will say, just it's so pressed into me as a man, as a student of God's Word, as a teacher of God's Word. Um, it's been wonderful. It's been exciting. It's been mind-blowing. Um, it's been... Uh, theologically challenging. It's been face down awing. And I will also say along with that, it has been weighty and life dominating and at times excruciating and really at times face down dark through it all. And uh, But that's the book. That is this book. And uh, I pray that it is just penetrating into us seriously in ways maybe that God's Word hasn't because of it's such a unique book of the Bible. And so we're doing sight by sight in that. And one of the uh, attributes of doing what we're doing, a sight by sight versus kind of a summary flyover, if you will, is when you go sight by sight, things unfold. Okay, like for instance, you, you go on a vacation or you go, you see sites and you stop at one site and you're like, okay, I've been there. I kind of got the site. I see it. Oh, okay, game on. I'm with it. And then it's like you think you got it. And then you go to the next site and it's like, cool, I get in this too. And it's like, wait a second, site number two actually has implications for site number one. I really didn't fully get site number one actually until I got to site number two. And that's kind of what happens here. And I want to let you know, I am purposely committing myself to staying to this. And so even in my study time, I'm not going to chapter 19. I'm not going to chapter 20, 21, and 22 and studying and figuring out how those are are lived back in this. I am literally site by sight along with you and letting this unfold in great part because that's how the first century readers, when they got it, that's how they were experiencing it through. So it's a really cool thing, but one of the neat things about it is that chapter 18, 17, 18, beginning of 19 is what we call this parenthetic pause, kind of this pause. Let's talk about some more information that we have to add in here. And chapter 18 is going to add some information to chapter 17. And the main topic, the main theme, the main word set or title that is in here is is the word set called Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great. What is it? Babylon the Great. And it's chapter 17 and 16. When we were in chapter 17, this Babylon the Great was pictured as a great prostitute. It was a woman. It was uh, then as we get towards the end of the city, a great city. And and we see here it moves in. And and it's kind of like sight by sight, chapter 18 is going to fill that out. Chapter 17 was very much about this concept of spiritual Babylon. That this Babylon the Great has this idea of a spiritual entity to it. And chapter 18, I think all of a sudden it's like, whoa, that adds to what we understand Babylon the Great to be. It's not just a spiritual entity, it's actually a physical entity as well. In other words, I would say it and sum it up like this. As I think as we begin seeing this laid out here in 17 and 18, what we find out is that Babylon the Great is a one-world religion along with a one-world governing economic structure that is a global system existing on earth in the final moments of redemptive history as we know it. Let me put it this way. We've talked about kind of this idea of this redemption history game as one of my pictures I've used here for us to do this. And, and I've talked about that, like a picture as we are reading uh, or having the book of Revelation read to us, told to us in the final two-minute uh, timeout warning of, of a game. In other words, it's two minutes left in the game on the clock. There's a timeout on the field. We're kind of off to the sidelines. Those are in Christ are off to the sidelines 
sidelines and the second coach of the triad of coaches is having a conversation with us and it's kind of picture it as though he's telling us the book of Revelation, uh, I think as this is set out. In other words, this is what is going to unfold in the last minutes of the game, you guys. I've got this. I know what's going down. Hear me out in this. And as we're hearing this, we hear this term Babylon the Great. And we're kind of like, I don't know what that is. I mean, I don't see that on the map in the United States or in Canada or Mexico or North. I don't see it anywhere. And, and, and he's talking about this, and we're getting this idea, chapter 17, that there's a spiritual reality to it. Chapter 18, now, there's a functional, physical, earthly, governing, economic reality to all of this. And, and so what he's saying to us in this time is, listen, you're going to go back out in the field here in just a second, and when you go back out, know this, uh, with like seconds remaining, let's say seven seconds remaining on the clock, all of a sudden you're going to hear the dragon's coach on the other side of the field. He is going to make a major call out, and he's going to call Babylon the Great. And what's going to happen in this picture is what's going to happen is all of a sudden that is going to set into play a play. And, and his people are going to carry out this function, this play on the field in the very closing seconds of the game before I return. And this is what's, I think, happening here and being laid out, and we're seeing this one-world religion, one-world governing global system being played out on the field in the final seconds that Satan is literally empowering, entering into, and it's the final showdown play of the game of redemptive history. And, and, and that's kind of the picture. Let me leave it with that. Bible's of Revelation 18, you there? Okay, let me just make a couple notes, kind of get your head in the game of how we're flowing here. Chapter 17 was a talk about the fate of spiritual Babylon. I think we're going to see here, chapter 18 is this kind of this talk about the fate, the fall of this economic governing world structure on the field, if you will. We see in here, we see three pronouncements. The first one is another angel in verse 1, and then we look over in verse 4, and there's another voice from heaven there, and then you go to to the end, and you see in verse 21, then another mighty angel speaks up. We have three pronouncements. Within the set at the second pronouncement, there's a discussion about how the kings of the earth see things, how the merchants see things, and how the sea people or the shipmasters, the sailors, the people of the world see things. Okay, three pronouncements. We have three examples in here. Uh, let's dive in. All right, ready. God, I pray as we dive into your word that you would help us to see you more. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, let's begin. Chapter 18, verse 1, uh, fallen, fallen, pronouncement number 1. Let me read verses 1 through 3. After this, John, I saw another angel uh, coming out or coming down from heaven having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. That's cool. And he called out. What did he do? He called out with a mighty voice saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. That's the entirety of this entity. Uh, she has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt or, or like a prison house, uh, for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Uh, why? For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Understand here, reminder, we're not talking about physical sexual immorality here. This is in the picture of chapter 17 of the great prostitute. This is spiritual immorality, okay? Uh, that's going on here. This is literally, it's spiritual porneia is, is the word that's used. And then it goes on. So the nations have drunk it. The kings of the earth have committed this immorality, this porneia with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. All right, let, let's work this through. Verse one. So there's an angel, another angel. It shows up. 
Now, now some think and say that they think this is actually Jesus Christ that is the one showing up here. I, 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 and I don't think that's the case here. I think the movement of the flow of this is that this is another angel that's coming here. It's a mighty angel having great authority. By the way, it's pretty cool the way John describes this because he's like, I saw this mighty angel with great authority. And I'll just say, how, how do you see might and authority? I mean, those are usually things that are expressed. Authority is something that you do, you kind of have, but you carry out. And I think in it, it's like, yeah, but have you ever met someone where you're like, you don't know much about them, but you're like, dude, you are mighty. <laughs> if you might say it that way, or man, you've got just great authority. And here's an angel that of great authority, and it talks about how the earth is lighted up with his glory. By the way, I, I think an important thing to note is, is it's not the angel's glory, if ultimately, if you will. Uh, listen, God's servants reflect God's glory. And so the glory here isn't because the angel's like the Almighty. The glory here is because the angel is coming from uh, before, from serving uh, the Father. Listen, listen, God's servants are to be reflectors of God's glory. There's an application right there for us. God's servants are to be reflectors, not of any of our glory, but of God's glory in his greatness of it all. Verse 2, he speaks out with a mighty voice, not like a wimpy voice, but a mighty voice. It's an authoritative pronouncement voice. And he says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now, it's interesting. The, the word fallen here in the Greek is called the aorist tense. That means it's just an action that's happened. Now, it's not presently happening, that's a different tense. It's not future tense that it's going to happen, but he's making a declaration as though it's already happened, but we're about to read and about in history, it's going yet to happen. It's kind of this proleptic idea, it's kind of this idea that it's like he's declaring something done that hasn't come to full fruition yet. Know this, you guys, God wins. It's done, okay, it's just done. It's like, come on, God, let's just like get on with it then. <laughs> True, but yet it's the fact that we are living out God's already done thing. He will win because he has won in it. Fallen, fallen, he, he declares this out. That's a statement we saw in Revelation 14, verse 8. And then you see kind of these funny terminologies, this haunt for, this prison house for, unclean spirit, unclean bird, detestable. That, that, that I think really comes out of an Old Testament concept. Isaiah 13, Isaiah 34, other Old Testament ta passages use this terminology, and I think it's fitting and important. It uses this terminology when it makes reference to the, the, to the destruction of cities that have flaunted God's law. It's using this Old Testament idea, bringing into here because it fits with what is about to be told. Verse 3, why is Babylon fallen, fallen? Not just once, but fallen, fallen, fallen. Oh, verse 3, for all nations have drunk the wine, the kings of the earth have committed a spiritual immorality, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of Babylon's wealth. By the way, uh, follow these because I think this is really kind of introducing these characters, if you will, to what's about to come. Uh, uh, religion and governing power. First century A.D., when they would see this, hear this read, uh, they would without question be thinking of Rome in its day. Rome was known for ruling, controlling, uh, 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 gathering its empire really through two means. One was, if you will, power. The other was actually through religious structure. And the two were for kind of gathering as well as controlling at the time here. And a person at that point in time, when they're reading through this, so much of this is coming out in it. In fact, it was said back in the day that Rome conquered the world as much through its merchants as through its military. 
In other words, Rome was this kind of thing to where it's like, hey, you want to be on the gravy train of luxury? Join them. That's the deal. You want that? Join them. And so it was almost, in many ways, kind of an easy world takeover for much of Rome. While much was military, there was much to where people were just like, I'm in because you are my gravy train. You're the cash daddy. And we want to be in your pocket. And we want to be on your system. And so they're seeing this, hearing this. But, but I also have to say, what was going on in Rome in the day is nothing like the, the, the mass uh, world global reality that we see throwing out here. I think that there were shadows of that in the day, but it's coming to a full culmination because it wasn't to near the extent that we've seen through Revelation here. So that's kind of the setup. Pronouncement number two. Let's come into pronouncement, or number one, pronounce it number two, verse four. Then, so in other words, after what he just heard, which is coming out of fall in his Babylon in the great, then I heard another voice from heaven saying. Another, this, this word is alas. It's like, I think, essentially giving the idea, another of the same kind. In other words, there was one who said, and then there's another one like that. So this one also is likely a, a mighty angel of great glory giving of the Lord. And another angel comes and says, verse 4, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her play. Let's pause there. Let's, let's camp on verse 4 here for a minute. Some say that uh, this other voice uh, um, here is uh, a direct message from the throne. Uh, others disagree. I think this is another of like angels speaking here. The, the, the theme here that's going is come out of. It's not just coming out of a physical city, but it's kind of a coming out unto something else. It's a faithfulness call. It's a perseverance call. It's a come out and remain in the Lord call. And it's to be called out from the enticements of Babylon. Remember chapter 17? I mean, just frank, I've got to be clear and yet careful here. The great prostitute is strutting her stuff. She's got it going, blinging it up, bringing it to the table. Come on, baby. That's what's really going on in 17. And the world is just like, I'm in your game. And yet here it's like, called out. <laughs> don't, 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 don't go there. Don't hang with her. Uh, called out from is what's taking place. It's called out to be separate from that. A couple comments with that. Uh, called out is having this idea of what it's being called out from is called out from having fellowship with the sins of them. They're called out, separate. We, we, we should be Holy, the, the word means called to holiness. The word means separate from. It's, it's called out from. Listen, in Christ, we should be different from. Okay? And, and I'll just say, I, I've been observing, uh, seriously, in myself and in other people, that I think in Christianity sometimes there's this yearning to want to be accepted in. So I'll talk like you, do like you, uh, uh, dress like you, play like you, weekend like you, so that I'm not a dork, okay? No, 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 and it's kind of like, gotta get it. I'm the Christian cool dude, I do those things. This is not getting to legalism here. I am not going there, but I am saying this. There should be a called outness of us, and yet that called out that, if you will, that separation does not mean isolation from. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. And so we are to be a people that engage with our culture, engage with our day, and engage with unbelievers, but we do it in a way that, are you called out living I'm just going to ask, are you living as one called out? Or are you working so hard to be like? Called out at home? Called out at work? Called out at school? Called out on the weekends? 
Called out on dates, called out in marriages, called out living as parents. That should be something that is part of us. Not sin police, but called out ones. Called out. Judgment made, verse 5. Why should we come out of? Well, we don't want to take part in our sins, lest you share in our plagues. Why? For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. This is a really unique verb that's used here. Boy, that makes me sound like a real dorky grammar person. Uh, but there really is here. It's this idea of they're heaped up, this, this idea that, they, that, that uh, the, your iniquities, I think the New International Version says crimes. Am I correct on that? And the reason for that is this is in a context of a judicial discussion here. Okay, this is a judicial discussion, and what the verb is, is it's like all of your iniquity, iniquitous crimes, they're glued together and piled up. They're all stuck together. They're not all separate laying around. No, no, they pile up on top, build themselves up towards, they're adding up, piling up to the sky is kind of this idea to it. And I just got to say, boy, that sounds like the Tower of Babel, going all the way back to Genesis 10 and 11. Where Babylon uh, in that area is actually where things got started in this idea. And so it's this building up of these crimes. And notice it says God remembered her iniquities. That, that's a unique thing because it's like, well, why? Are you saying God forgot? No. Just saying this. In the scripture, most of the time when things say God remembered, it means that, not that he had forgotten, he wants you to know. It means that God now is remembering and doing something about it. God right now is now remembering all of their sins piled, glued together, piled high, and now it's time for God to remember. By the way, within that means this, God has been excruciatingly long in his suffering and pouring out grace before this happened. Know that. When these judgments come, you have to see it in the picture of the whole game of God's just almost like unending grace at being offered. But then there comes a time where it's time to be remembered and to deal with it. And that's what's taking place here. And he remembered and he acts. When the Bible talks about God remembers his people, it talks about he remembers them and he does something after it. Verse 6, pay her back is what is happening. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her cup in the cup uh, she mixed. Interesting here. There's this idea of this law of retribution as a theme that, that's going on here. It's a payback. It's a repayback. and It's even a double payback. And, and you read this and you see this. By the way, the cup that she used to seduce others the Lord is going to use that cup to destroy her. The cup used to destroy other people is the same cup the Lord is going to use to destroy her, to destroy Babylon and all that's happening. By the way, you look at this and you can kind of come in this and go, my goodness, God must like, God may have like a little side in him that he like gets over the top wrongful vengeance in this double repay. I just want to remind us in this that, uh, one, Scripture talks about, Exodus 22 talks about double payback. Psalm 79 talks about a sevenfold retaliation. So, one, there's this theme in Scripture of this payback, but we talked some weeks ago about this. Listen, God, when he punishes, God's punishment fits the crime perfectly. God is not out of control here. What, what, what is happening here is just uh, 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 helping us understand the massive pile of crime iniquity that has been piled up over time, and God is not going overboard in his, in his vengeance. Uh, it, it's just time to rightly proportion justice to the sin is what's going on. And sometimes we need to know that God is going to write the real wrongs, and it actually gives hope. It's not a we're thrilled of God's crushing, but it's just this. God is going to bring his wrath full strength, not watered down. Verse 7 and 8. And this is happening because she glorified herself, Babylon as a whole, 
lived in luxury. So give her a like measurement of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, hey, I sit as queen. Wait, why, why queen? Because Babylon is the great prostitute, which is a woman. Babylon is this whole system on the earth. She says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow. And mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death, mourning, and famine. And she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. A major theme in Revelation is that glory belongs only to the Lord. Glory belongs only to the Lord. And yet in this we see that Babylon the Great is all about seeking her glory. She pursues and lives in this sensuous, luxurious, uh, luxurious, opulent living for her glory. And, and really her, her self-centered greed is the whole antithesis of what holiness looks like. We could say it this way, kind of with her statements. Her first sin is self-glorification. I sit as queen. I sit as queen. Who, who made you queen? I did. Well, how arrogant, unless you're the one who can do that. And that the Lord's sitting there going like, oh yeah, not only am I king of kings, by the way, girl, I'm king of queens. Okay? And yet, this is what she's doing, Babylon, the great. She, it's self-glorification. By the way, self-glorification ultimately is really self-deification. I put myself above everything, everyone. Uh, if you will, a second sin of Babylon here is satisfaction and luxury, this opulent living and luxury. Friends, understand this. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with nice things. But this is talking about living in opulent luxury where it is the God. And that's what's happening here. And then the third sin of Babylon, we could say, is her haughty self-confidence. I am no widow. No, I will never grieve. You're a fool. You're just a fool. By the way, let me throw this out here. Notice, self-glorification, satisfaction in luxury, and self-confidence. Does that not sound like our culture? It really does. And might I say, what if she, what if Babylon the Great repented? What if in this she saw herself as, oh my word, I'm wrong. I am not the queen. I am not the one in charge. God is. Well, what if, if you will, in this concept, there was a repentance? Well, if there was, uh, there would be no remembering her crimes. There would be no payback or double repayback. There would be no arrogant thinking that, that she is who she isn't. There would be no burned up in fire. None of that. Yet, yet seeing it, but not repenting over it. Might that be you? Where it's like seeing what's happening, but not seeing what's happening. Friends, God's grace is full strength available now. Let's keep going. We'll see this show up. Announcement number two. Now we enter these three people groups living in this time when the destruction of the fallen Babylon who've been participating in this one world religion economic structure that they have now are seeing fall. Here we go, the kings respond, verses 9 and 10. And the kings of the earth, uh, are these the 10 kings of chapter 7 or just or other kings or all the kings of the earth? I'm going to guess uh, could be either, could be both. Uh, the kings of the earth who committed sexual morality, who committed spiritual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Hey, have you ever been a moment in your life when all of a sudden, your dreams, your wishes, the thing that you were living for, all of a sudden came crashing down. 
That's kind of what's going on here. Everything that these kings have been about, power and authority and world reigning and domination and the luxuriousness of coming out of, of being in this Babylonian system structure, and they see it burning coming down, and they're cut to the core, and because they've sold themselves to the God of this. So what happens? They see their gravy train going up in smoke. And notice they distance themselves. I'm like, dudes, you're kings. Go help her out. But they don't. They stand far off. Why? I'll say this. Because they've never been in love with her. They've only been in love with themselves. They've never really been in love with her. They've only been in love with what they get out of her and this structure. And so if she burns up, they don't care so much as like, let's go protect the structure, the system. It's more they're far off. They stand far away. And they're sad. Sad about what? They're sad that their gravy mama just burned up. No repentance. No seeing God great. No seeing their sin no seeing their guilt of depravity before a holy God. They've just lost their tie into Wall Street because it just came crashing down. The merchants respond, verse 11, and the merchants of the earth, they weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Their gravy train's gone. Cargo of gold and silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine wheat, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is human souls. The fruit for which their soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. It's kind of like a person standing at the end of their life and they look back and they go, oh my word, it was all a waste. Oh my word, I sold my soul to the wrong thing. It's interesting, this list. This list here uh, uh, tells us more about who these merchants are. These merchants would be more like, maybe modern day terms would be wholesalers, commodity dealers, kind of middle, upper business class in, in the final days. Uh, they're supplying people everything. They're the, the businessmen, businesswomen of the day, if you will, and they sold their souls for wealth, are these particular individuals. And as a first century reader is reading this list, they're going through this. And the typical average person in that day is not going, I've got that in my house and that in my house and that in my house. This is a list of, if I ever hit it big, this stuff would, I would be in the game for that. In other words, let me translate it into modern day. Verses 12 and 13 might look more like this. Uh, um, and, and no one buys their cargo anymore. The, the Cartier, the Rolex, the Louis Vuitton, the Armani, the Chanel, the 1947 Chateau Chavez, uh, Ch Cheval Blanc, I can't even say this stuff. Uh, Magasar, Ebony, Woods, the Thoroughbreds, the Maids and Butlers, and the selling of, by the way, how interesting is this? And the selling of human souls. Does that sound like anything relevant in our day? 
I mean, this goes all the way in modern days to all of those things. And, and listen, nothing's wrong with things in and of themselves. But it's if they're our God, if they're what we're living for, you are living for nothing. It will burn. And here in this, it's even this idea of we might take it into some modern day stuff and even this idea of uh, uh, it's, it, it's selling people, it's, it's sex trade industry, it's Planned Parenthood stuff. Hey friends, wealth just has a way of becoming your security. Wealth just has a way of becoming even a silent God. It does. And I know. It has a way. It just has a way. It it can end up looking like luxury and opulence, but it can also have this way of looking like my social status. Or my 401k. My 401k is strong, therefore I'm secure. My career is strong, therefore I'm secure. The fact that I have no debt, therefore I'm secure. Be careful. By the way, in all of this, on this Wealth, this luxury, I just, I, I have to make a note. Um, followers of Christ, be very, very careful of the prosperity gospel. They come to Jesus and you'll have checks flying in the mail for you. And you'll have health and wealth and prosperity and total happiness and no problems. Listen, that is so unbiblical. But in it, I also want to say this. Be very careful of the poverty gospel. You know, I mean, people who really love God in America, they have uh, HGTV tiny houses. If you know what I'm talking about. You know? And it's like we end up going, well, I got a junker car. I'm more godly than you in your nice car. Watch it. Money's not the issue. The heart is. That's the issue. The kings lament the loss of their power. The merchants lament the loss of their wealth. The third group, the sailors, the sea peoples, the shipmasters, they respond here. Middle of verse 17, latter half. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and whose trade on the sea, especially in first century AD. I mean, this just makes so much sense as to who's being talked about. These are all the transportation world. They also stand far off as Babylon has fallen and burning up and cry out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned. That's a whole uh, process of mourning, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Their God just got burned up. And one more time I note, they don't mourn their reality of who God is, that they missed their gravy train, that they missed the true relationship with God and replaced it with the gravy train fake. No repentance, no seeing it for real. They're just sad that they didn't get what they had wanted. But they still don't turn. They still don't turn. They still don't go face down with the Lord. Still no marveling for God. And then watch what takes place. All right, in this statement, this angel who is allowing him to see and saying this, verse 20, it's like this odd almost break in it. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. I got to say, really, read through it, and you'll come through, and it's like you're reading, alas, alas, a great city that grew rich with her wealth and laid waste, and then it's like, rejoice. 
What's going on here? This angel, as this is happening, I think what's happening here is he's seeing this and this is taking place. It's just like all this is burning up and he sees the sea people make this statement and the angel's like, rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice over what is happening right here. And I want to talk about that for a second because at first glance, this kind of gives you an idea that it's like, wow, this is rude. Know this. They are not rejoicing over the damnation of sinners. They are rejoicing that righteousness has triumphed over catastrophic, glued together, piled high, unrepentant sin. And God's name is being righted. And what God said he would do, he is doing. And they rejoice over that. This is not this crude thing. It's like, fools burn. That's not going on in this. They are rejoicing in who God is and the fact of the matter that, oh, depravity and sin is coming to an end. Rejoice over that. Babylon sought to take the Godhead's glory, but now the Godhead is judging them for it. Babylon condemned saints in their court. And now, if you will, Babylon is being condemned in God's court. And the heavenlies rejoice. As Beale says, the rejoicing does not arrive out of a selfish spirit of revenge, but out of a fulfilled hope that God has defended the honor of his just name by not leaving sin unpunished, and by showing his people the verdict rendered on them by the ungodly world it was wrong and has now been overturned and made right. Rejoice in that. And then pronouncement three, no more. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone. By, by the way, back in the day, time of this reading, first century, uh, in the houses, it was usually at that time women in the houses, they would have this small uh, um, a grindstone that they would have. It was literally could be held in the hand and they could put some things in it and, and grind it. I remember we used to do that with our kids when they were infants. We'd take our food and put in a little grinder and mash it all blah, and, and with them. And, and it was kind of, you know, there was a handheld, but it's not talking about that here. It's talking about a whole different millstone. There was another millstone in first century AD that was huge. In fact, it was so big that they would have one or two donkeys walking it around and this huge thousands of pounds stone would grind the meal or whatever is going on and it's like this angel picks up that kind of millstone and he throws it into the sea saying so will bab by the way just that picture of that it's just uh, seriously I don't want to hang on this for very long at all but that kind of grinding stone judgment is coming And it's just, frankly, a gross picture of God's judgment coming down as people are being, as sin and so forth is put in, and God is milling the stone. Oh. And he threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard of you no more. And craftsmen of any craft will be found in you what? And the sound of the mill will be heard in you. And the light of a lamp will shine in you. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you. I have to say, when all that's gone, that does not sound like a place we want to be. By the way, how interesting is it? The last one he gives here, the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard is no more. Chapter 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. When the groom rejoices with his bride, party on. 
Why no more? For the merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and all who have been slain on earth. Man. Dark stuff. As we um, finish and transition in time here of just communion with the Lord's Supper, one question and one statement. Question. This may come across a bit raw or maybe even a bit hard. I don't know. I'm just going to ask. In light of what we've been seeing happening here in Revelation 18 and the kings and the merchants and the sea people and, and Who do you love for real? Who do you love? And I'm talking about two options. I think what we really see here in the text is there's really two options. One is you love the Lord. The other is you love yourself. And I mean that because really loving Babylon the great in this structure which really Babylon the Great is part of Satan's whole last final play program, loving that, the only reason they're loving that is because what that gave them. Ultimately, this is really about kings and merchants and sea people who loved themselves so much that they were willing to sell their soul. They loved them that they would do whatever they could do for them. Who do you love? By the way, I I say that here and I need to quantify that. I'm not asking if you're perfectly loving God. No one in this room does. I'm, I'm not asking, are you earning God's favor? You can't do that. I'm not saying and implying in this that, listen, you gotta man up and woman up and work harder. I'm not saying that. I'm also not saying, I doubt that you are loving the Lord. I'm not saying that. I'm asking myself the same question. Over the last week, over the last months, over the last years, I mean, when when push comes to shove, who really has been the love of my life? Me or the Lord? What about you? Has it been more like not seeing it for what it really is and, and playing a, a good conversation game? Has it been kind of like standing far off? I just say this. Come out, my people. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Come out. Come out of that. Repent. Fall before the Lord. If there has not been a time where you have come and received Christ as your Savior, know this. The pursuit of the world is unending and unfulfilling. I could tell you of my life. And so could you. Come out. If you've never come to the place or you've received Christ as your Savior and said, I've got to be done with that and receive Christ as my Savior, I come out. Maybe for you, follower of Christ, it's a matter of, I need to fall before the Lord and just seek his repentance. Hey, he loves you. And he loves it when we repent. Who are you loving? And by the way, who you love shows in how you do life. Do weekends show that you love the Lord? Does work show that you love the Lord? Does your home show that you're pursuing after the Lord, that that's the thing that's driving you? If so, press on. Press on. A statement. Harvest, 
Um, let's do life and ministry together with half-broken hearts. Let's do life and ministry together with half-broken hearts. What do I mean? Man, in Christ there's so much joy. Sins have been forgiven. Sent away as far as the east is from the west because they never meet. North-south eventually does, not east-west. They, they, sealed by the Spirit of God. So much joy. And yet in all of that, I go through the book of Revelation And I'm just broken. Just broken of me. It's like, Lord, oh, just come. Let's just get on with it. Let's get over this and on with that. And broken for our world. Listen, friends, our world is on a highway to hell. And do I? Do we care? I don't even know what to do with this yet. I'm just being totally talking it out, transparent with you. But this has been dark stuff, dark, consuming stuff. And we live in a dark world, and we're called to be lights unto the dark world. I don't know what this means, but I'm just saying... Something has to happen to where we approach life together and to our world with half-broken hearts for them. And we would not have this sense of living in the luxury of our spiritual condition alone. Lights to the world. And it's a dark world. Oh, Lord. All of what is said in Revelation can happen because of what we just remembered. The glorious work at the cross, the empty tomb, the work that you have done, the broken body, shed blood. And God... It's not just a past thing, it's a future thing. And so in it, Lord, I would say until that time comes, oh God, may we pursue you, may we love this world, may we be a bright, shining light for you in a very dark world of people who need to know and see and hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I would pray, come. Come. Even so, come, Lord, come.